Hello. Hello, Lisa. How are you doing? Hi, Rose. I'm not too bad. <laughs> so I had the AstraZeneca um, uh, earlier on um, yesterday, but apart from that, I'm okay. I'm bearing up. How about you? How are you? Oh, yeah, fine, fine. Um, just chilling out, just trying to separate my working at home life from my actual home life. How are you yeah. feeling? You mentioned you were feeling shivery after the vaccine. Yeah, I've slept a lot today. Um, and nice. I've, had, I've had little moments of shivriness, but I feel a lot better now. I had to, and I had a little bit of soup earlier, and then I had some bread, and I feel a bit stronger now. So I feel a lot better now. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Soup's important. <laughs> yeah. So, would you think it's a fair description to say you are, obviously you're a writer from Essex who writes mainly on gentrification and the working class experience? Would you say um, it's true? Yeah, I guess so. I did write that description myself, but it was a couple of years ago now, and I feel like um, my kind of address of those issues is a bit more... Um, uh, more sort of designated now so it's more centered on kind of the art the experience of um the arts industry in those contexts um yeah. because you know as the creative industries kind of have a lot to do um they're kind of intertwined with gentrification now um and also experiencing the creative industries or art spaces from a working class perspective as well we certainly part of that too so yeah I suppose it I suppose it is still accurate yeah and um there's something that you and me sort of have a little bit of a bonding on uh, together and that's mm. about um, you wrote you wrote about your dad and you know I lost my dad back in 96 and I found that I really well I found that really poignant when I read that do you want to talk a little bit about that mm. oh yeah thank you no I appreciate that um yeah, it is one of those things, because as you say, you know, my description is, you know, Brighton writes about gentrification and working class experience, but I do um, like to try and avoid that kind of labelling now, because I don't, I think it is quite impossible to be just one thing. I would love to just be one thing, you know, and say this is what I do. Um, but yeah, with, <clears throat> with the text about my dad, so I'll just um, explain it for those who haven't read it or aren't familiar with my oeuvre. Um, so basically last year in um, April 2020, I lost my dad. He was diagnosed uh, with cancer, I think it was stage four uh, advanced cancer starting in the lung. Um, by that point, it had spread to several of his organs. Um, he was diagnosed in January last year and then passed away actually quite suddenly in April. Um, so we had expected to have more time. Um, so the article really was just something I was sort of trying to, I've been trying to make a lot of sense of what was going on, um, not only kind of during um, the time when he was ill and after that as well. So the issue um, when, you know, during his illness was that I had been living in the Netherlands and I returned to the UK during lockdown to be near him. And so to avoid, you know, if anything happened to him, avoid not being there, yeah. you know. Um, and so I was staying at home uh, in lockdown because my dad lived with my stepmom in another address. So it got to a point where there was too much risk of giving, giving him coronavirus and kind of exacerbating the issue that we actually couldn't spend any time with him. So those final months we could have spent together. You know, you'd imagine it like how it is in a film, like going for long walks along the beach in his wheelchair, um, saying words to each other that we'd always wanted to say to each other um we didn't have that so 
it's kind of it was wrestled with that and you know Lisa as we kind of um chatted a little bit over email about this it's kind of also um compounded by the emotional distance with him as well um and he was he was always very emotionally distant and it's one of those things where you kind of you wrestle with it you think oh is it me is it my fault but at the end of the day if you're the child in that position you can only work with what you've got so um and it's the same for my brother as well we kind of have a lot of things which were left unsaid with dad um and I think that was perhaps just the way it was meant to be really and it's you kind of you have to um logicize I don't know if that's the word logicize these things for your own for the sake of your sanity I think um and at the end of the day it just it sucks um yes yeah that's kind of what the article is about really me just trying to make sense of what happened and it did kind of tie in quite well with quite well with what was going on at the time which was this distance um of the lockdown socially and the emotional distance of dads um yeah <laughs> that's i mean i um how so do you way, you sort of use i think you possibly use writing sort of for, for therapy in a way to sort of try and understand it to try and make it some some sort of sense out of it do you think yeah, that's possible. Um, I'd never really, I used to write a bit of poetry um, and some of those things used to come out, which I kind of recognised were about my dad. Um, and I do feel like not just in this um, kind of aspect, but also when I'm thinking about things which are going on in the world, if it comes to a point in my brain where I'm like, oh my God, there's something there, I do feel that I have to write about it uh, to make sense of it and kind of solidify it. So yeah, so it was very therapeutic, definitely. Yeah, so you you were never. Um, you, did you finish your MA in the Netherlands? Yes, I did. Um, I managed to finish my thesis. I got a couple of extensions, um, and I had a supervisor who was very understanding and just kind of let me do my own thing and um, boomerang between two countries like a mad person. Um, yeah, I managed to in the end. So your your. Your degree was that in was that in art or was it in writing? Because I feel like you're a little bit across between the both. So what was your degree in? Uh, yeah, you're correct. I'm a bit of a cross between both. So my degree was in fine art. Um, I studied at St Martin's, but I graduated in 2012. So my master's was in um, arts, literature, and society. Um, more because you know by that point I had started a writing practice and felt that I needed that kind of MA just to bolster my knowledge you know if that makes any sense and my also my kind of critical understanding and also just to get out of the UK for a bit it was post Brexit and I was kind of gagging for something un-British you know what I mean yeah, yeah. so are you have agreed to to read out um, policy number 12 um mm. Bomb. so are you are you happy to do that do you want to do yeah that? absolutely okay sure so um this was a piece um which i which was part of an exhibition by the agency of visible women which was held at the beecroft um last year unfortunately it had to close early because of uh, the coronavirus um which is kind of interesting because that kind of ties into everything which we've spoken about so far about um the pandemic um yeah and the agency of visible women it was entitled the exhibition was entitled policy i believe and it was about um 
kind of addressing that idea of the policy and what could be put in place for um, women and people who identify as women or non-binary. Um, and mine is just in the form of a letter. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it and then, okay. yeah. Okay. Dear Council, I hope that this letter finds you well. I wanted to ask a question about a particular artwork in your collection. I can recall its strangeness from when I first witnessed it in its former home of the Palace Theatre. The gravitational defiance, the thrusting of the swan, the woman's mouth agape, her body falling back, vulnerable, the forcefulness. It dwarfed me in my six-year-old smallness. And while it is made of bronze, it is leaden in my memory. Do you remember when you commissioned it in the 60s? Sure, the artist was a woman, but Lucette Cartwright's oeuvre is predominantly erotically charged evocations of myth. An interesting choice for your commission, indeed made increasingly interesting when you decided to place the sculpture outside of the Civic Centre. Then it was moved to the Palace Theatre, then to the Civic Centre again, eventually disappearing following a trail of complaints. I wonder about the kind of responses you must have received. You must be glad that there was no social media back then. In 2008, it was moved once more to the mayoral residence, sitting in the grounds amongst an appropriate landscaped area. Although I have to say, it's hard to imagine what appropriate means. If no one can see it, is it still offensive? If it is shrouded beneath reams of bureaucracy, is it still offensive? Enjoyed only by a procession of mayors, is it still offensive? I was a weird child. I could focus on things endlessly, letting my imagination spiral. Picture me, a little girl, staring at the statue and working out the relation between the two beings depicted. What was happening here? Picture me beginning to comprehend these concepts in my mind. Harm, force, fear. Its aura of danger was palpable, even then. You may have worked out by the subtext here that I'm addressing you as though you are a singular body with memory, more so, one who can be designated as wholly responsible in that respect. But whether or not my wry irony has been effective, the fact remains that the sculpture is still in your collection. Dear Council, my question, is this to be commemorated as a piece of our town's heritage? Because it is a part of mine. <laughs> oh, that's really good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, did you actually ever, did you actually send this letter? No. Um, no, the more, um, I'm super interested in, so I'll just explain a bit more. So um, this is about a sculpture called, I believe it's just called um, Lader and the Swan. And it's obviously um, a depiction of Zeus in the form of a swan raping Lader as part of a, that Greek mythology. I'm not that okay with it. Um, and this statue has just been kind of placed around Southend and all sorts of spots. And it's just kind of weird how it's sort of been protected, but also it's, it was just such a, a strong image to have in the pub garden, to be honest. And that's what kind of struck me about it. Um, so I never sent the letter to the council because, you know, it's not, I don't actually care what they have to say about that. It's more to do with, um, the idea of addressing the council as a singular body of responsibility and also whose bodies are affected by that 
um, by those actions. Because at the end of the day, I could write a strongly worded letter of complaint, which people do to the council, and it kind of it's holding someone to account. But what I'm interested in the idea of this kind of the council um, is that they are a body of of agency, but there's no singular body within that, if you know what I mean. It's kind of it is a singular body within itself. Um, and the idea that it has the power to affect over other actual bodies is what I was thinking about. So it's more kind of that um, that idea, yeah. essentially. Ah. Well, the first thing I read about yours was about the mother and child, and I, I did listen to Phoenix FM. And um, mm, thank questioning, you. questioning as well, questioning what decisions and what's uh, and uh, talking to someone who who lived in Brook House and uh, you know it's all mm. going on all this building but nothing's happening in Brook House Brook House stays the same and there's a lot to be done mm. <laughs> that's, I think that's yeah absolutely it's something I actually I really want to write a book about this is the kind of the significance of these sculptures of female bodies um in these places and what they kind of come to symbolise really, like the mother and child especially. Um, so the point of that article was that, uh, yeah, the mother and child sculpture was created in order to kind of symbolise the birth, I'm using air quotes, um, with my hands, the, but people can't see that. Um, the birth of Basildon as the new town, which obviously was not really a birth because Basildon was already in existence, but it was just its conception as a new town. Um, and its redevelopment. So I would consider it to symbolize more its rebirth. And the, this idea of rebirth, um, and which is super pertinent to what's going on at the moment with the master plan. So Basildon is being redeveloped again with more tower blocks have been proposed. Um, and there's obviously the new cinema, even though it already has a cinema, more restaurants, it already has restaurants. Um, yeah, this idea of rebirth and what that actually means because you know none of these things if we think about it are really for the people who are already in Basildon those existing communities yeah you think so I suppose, I suppose so and um you know all these people you know these what I'm worried about is you know they're building all these flats and you know the infrastructure is it's like you know with the roads be so busy with all these people living in these flats mm. thing, but I don't know. I, I'm. I find the cinema exciting, um, and it, it, you know, the idea of it is exciting. But then there's a lot of people who don't feel the same. You know, there's a lot of people who yeah. don't. You know, they're, they're um, I won't say negative, but they, you know, there's other things they could spend their money on. People are saying, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. And don't get me wrong, I love going to the cinema. Um, so I'm probably definitely going to visit that cinema at some point, even though I don't even live in Basildon, I will go there. Um, what was I going to say? It's, it's interesting because, you know, this idea of kind of a nighttime economy as well in the high street, which, yeah, perhaps Basildon, perhaps that it will benefit from it in some respects, because at the moment at night, the high street is just kind of a ghost town um there's nothing really going on there it's kind of a vast blank space with nothing happening um yeah. but i think that's what's interesting about kind of the role of the high street uh in kind of a broader sense um it's kind of it's very similar to south end is that there isn't really a nighttime economy um, especially not now under lockdown but you know a lot of the pubs and bars are closing 
um, and just the kind of cultural offering has is dissipated somewhat. So it's there's this kind of idea that the high street has to evolve in that respect. Um, that it's kind of sort of on an uneven kilter at the moment, and that it's moving from you know a daytime economy from uh, shops like a lot of especially in Basildon as well. I know a lot of the shops are closing or being regenerated. Uh, we born even as weird mobile phone shops, things like that, weird shoe shops. Um, yeah, I'm kind of I'm writing a lot of things um, about this at the moment about this how the role of the high street is kind of changing, and from what I can understand of the Basildon master plan is that is not that area is not so much going to remain a high street. It's just going to become area um it's like a mix of residential there's a proposed stadium apparently in the cinema as well so it's like a sort of residential slash leisure park um extravaganza which just sounds insane yeah but then do you th if it wasn't working before you know and they're just trying this this different thing maybe it's you know if it was if it, things were shots were shutting maybe it's just like mm. something else to try you know I can sort of see where they're coming from in a, you know, in a way. Um, but yeah, like I say, we've got literally um, down the roads, we've got um, we've got a festival leisure, haven't we? And we've got um, the yeah. cinema there. And uh, if, if it works, it'd be wonderful, but will it work? You know, um, I hope, I suppose they're thinking that they're getting like, they're putting the college there, they're putting the, um, all the, the building more, sort of um places for people to live so they're putting people there to use these things in a way you know that maybe that's the way they're thinking but yeah yeah and i can understand that completely but um the thing with these kind of sort of leisure spaces like especially uh festival leisure park as well is that they're kind of um these sort of non-spaces they're very liminal um so and with that it kind of it makes it very difficult to people to um especially in a kind of a broader sense, they don't really have an attachment to Basildon. Obviously, people come to Basildon for the leisure parks, for the cinema, but not for Basildon in itself. And so when you kind of expand these liminal sort of spaces in which, you know, they don't mean anything, it's just another, you know, it's a B and q it's a Costa Coffee, um, it makes it really difficult for the people who already live there to kind of associate with that space um, and to kind of formulate their own identities within that against something because otherwise it's just a non-space if you know what I mean yeah yeah it's just, it's all one big experiment isn't it I mean the mm. whole, it was in the beginning new towns were a big experiment yeah and um yeah going back to my history books I remember um it was glory you know the uh, words of it's Silkin oh I can't remember my name. yeah Louis Silkin he made it sound glorious you know that people be traveling all <laughs> over the world to come and visit Basildon and you know what <laughs> In fact, they have done in a way on the tip on the Depeche motor, but that is yeah. or maybe may, mainly from um, Europe. <laughs> but, uh, that's <laughs> where, where they brought people down because of Depeche motor and how brilliant they were, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in a way, it has kind of fostered that. Um, but yeah, that, uh, as you say, you know, if Lewis Silk in the Newtown was an experiment and some of them have been kind of more um, successful, air quotes, again, um, they've been able to foster a kind of uh, community culture. I think the issue with Basildon as well is that it kind of, um, 
because it took on a lot of the communities from the East Ends. Um, there was this hostility. Um, it's documented quite well in the um, Newtown Utopia film as well. There was this hostility between the existing people living there and the East Enders coming in. Um, and Basildon is kind of sort of in the tidelines, if you will, of London as well. So it's as a commuter belt town, it's kind of one of those places where people come to just live and, you know, order a takeaway on the weekends and then travel into work in London. I know I'm being super generalistic because that is certainly not the case for a lot of Basildon. Um, it's kind of the biggest employment uh, hub, I believe, in Essex, or at least has kind of, you know, highest business something I'm not very okay with what I'm talking about at the moment um but I feel like in that you know what I mean and the high street doesn't really have a big role in that so in that respect I think what's happening now again returning to this idea of a bigger shift happening in general is that the role of the high street is kind of dying um and should in some respects if it's not working we should become something else it shouldn't be centered on commerce it should be something for community yeah um there was like when i was talking to direction baz that was what they they want more studio space and that's one thing i think you believe in as well more mm. space for people to get together and commune um a typical mm. place back in history that was the baz um was the art center and that everyone i've met says says wonderful things about that so that's what people want they i think they want to get people together make sure there's a spaces for people to get together and that's important I hope they do that yeah yeah absolutely um I think did you you came to the um it was the kind of survey meeting thing with Metal and Azella I think about um what the in creative industries need for Basildon it was like a zoom did you yeah, come to that as well yeah I was, I was there yeah yeah um because this is the kind of conversation I was having there as well. I don't think you were in my breakout room as well, but this is kind of like my usual spiel about what's going on with the arts in Basel at the moment is that, um, you know, with um, Directions Baz as well, Laura from Directions Baz, she organised um, a kind of initiative about, you know, the conservation of the existing art in Basildon as well and what that means for, you know, the people who've grown up with it and where it gets put because um, the there's a history in Basildon of a lot of its public sculptures being sort of displaced and removed and never seen again and you know being in a warehouse somewhere who knows or in the bottom of the sea um and that was one of the discussions that came up is that um you know do we fight for the just the conservation of the art do we kind of just zone in on that or do we also kind of oppose the master plan or work with the master plan overall um and the thing is with that is that it's obviously worth, you know, um, advocating for Basildon's existing culture, but also for anything else to be fostered. We have to nurture those, what those, uh, what creatives need. And that is, you know, affordable housing, studio space, as you say, somewhere to congregate, a cultural centre. There are a couple of places like that, um, like the, that club, I can't remember what that club's name is. Um, it's the one upstairs. <laughs> what is it called? Um, so I'm sure lots of people, if anyone, if anyone that I know is listening to this later on, they're going to be saying, well, it is obviously this and you've been there several times. What are you talking about? I know where I mean, but there are just a very, if anything, that is really, there is only a very small handful of spaces in which creative people can meet and 
showcase their work. So that is something that we definitely need. Um, and Bazart's Index especially are kind of working towards that as well. Um, so who knows? You know, hopefully once all these shops become empty, um, I know there is a lot more kind of going on there with who owns these spaces privately, the private landlords and happening there. So these things are obviously a lot more complicated than they seem. Um, but yeah, I'm totally out for that for artists taking ownership of these spaces and making it something. And talking about art, I want to pick you up on what you said. Mainly my thing is how art functions in the social setting setting is that right at sense yeah. and what use can it be lots of internal wrestlings about this and i've sort of said to you i've got you know ha having done um a degree with a lot of fine art and i have my internal wrestlings as well mm. you might mean something completely different from me what you know what is it that you mean about that um well i feel like potentially what we're our feelings are fairly similar so mine um again you know kind of coming from a working class background I didn't really know what my background was until I went into art school um, and found that oh, you know a lot of people can sort of make art and not have to work two jobs um, you know not have to worry they can kind of do an internship if they want you know internships are evil anyway but you know they could kind of they had the choice to do what they wanted to do and make what they wanted to make and even pay people to make art for them if they so wanted to um, and a lot of so a lot of my kind of internal wrestlings of sort of perhaps I'm hanging on to a residual bitterness of being at St. Martin's and being like, oh, like, you know, making stuff which just didn't seem to work um, or having that kind of organic wanting to make art taken away from me. Um, but then at the same time, once you kind of go into that environment and come out the other side, you still are shaped by it. So, yeah. you know, it's something I've written a little bit about before, but looking at kind of community art or art made by yeah like community groups and thinking oh I can see that this is obviously of an inherent good to these people to make these things for themselves but it's crap which is just such an awful thing and it ties into this idea that you know you have to monetize your creativity and that it's this idea that you know we all say oh everyone can paint but not everyone can paint well everyone can paint like everyone can put paint on canvas but and that's it. That is essentially what we're talking about when we say people can paint. But the question is, can people paint and make it sellable and make people want it to buy it? So I'm totally wrestling with this problem of, you know, making something, then be like, oh, I need to sell this. Like now and then I still make uh, like drawings, for example. I still work with kind of uh, paints and pastels. And as soon as I start making something, I think, oh, great, I should make more of these and then sell it and then make an Instagram page. And I, I think that's something quite a lot of people perhaps can relate to. Yeah. Um, but how would you say it was for you? Does that, does that resonate with you? Yeah, um, I found, um, I did graphic design for two years at South Essex College, South East Essex College, mm. and then I did a year. Uh, I needed to have a bit more briefing space. It was getting too business-like, so I moved to Rittle. At the time, it's called Rittle School of Design. And mm. some of the conceptual ideas, for me, were people were doing crazy things, like um, mm. bury, you know, burying something down the bottom of a lake, and they had to get that. It doesn't matter about someone's life or that they're, they're putting themselves at risk to go and get this thing. I don't know. It, it's, it's hard to explain without you know, the whole details in front of me. But there, I, mm. I can, I also, I've, 
I can accept some things that are Tate modern, for example, and other things. I was like, no, I don't, I don't, why? Mm. <laughs> so I may, mm. I, like I said to you, I might not be the best fine artist because I might be too down to earth, but I do admire people who can do that and keep doing that sort of thing. Like, um, well, like yourself in a way, because it's writing stroke art and, and Sean Badham, you know, and other people who do this sort of thing. Mm. I have respect for them because they have this, you know, they what they, they really believe in what they're doing, you know. But I, um, the closest thing I did really was my final project, which was um, illustrated, and it was basically about this girl, no, none, she was living in a household with two men, and no one was talking about the mum who died. It was all, she felt like she was living in a box, and everything like mm. us uh, on the computer, no one was communicating, and it was, you know, and I wrote this, you know probably my best work but I haven't done anything with it because it <laughs> you know but um yeah so, yeah, so um yeah I struggle sometimes with the conceptual side but I admire people who can yeah. keep winning with it put it that way yeah yeah I understand that <clears throat> I think this is the <clears throat> sorry I think this is the main gripe that I have with art is that I am just fully aware it kind of exists in its own bubble and is uh, perpetuated by a very certain set of languages and theories um, and all the kind of industries behind it. I can certainly enjoy a piece of art in isolation. Um, but I kind of learned this very early on. I remember my I studied A-levels at South Ethics College, as it is now, um, and my final piece for my art and design was a... A uh, poster made out of chocolate um, and kind of a composite of communists, Chinese communists um, from the People's Revolution, I think, that imagery and those slogans. Um, and at the time, I, that was for me, that was like the height of intellectual brilliance because I could talk about it in a way in which, like, everyone else in the class was like whoa and were like speechless because they were just like that was just so many words and that was really impressive and I'm like yeah that's great um and that was very early on that's what I thought art was but then when I went to St Martin's I tried to make a conscious effort to you know work organically and be Francis Bacon and I just kind of had this um yeah there was just, just this difficulty with kind of joining the two and kind of making something and then later on being able to just talk about it and say it was about something um yeah that's my main gripe really but that's is something that kind of informs how I write about things and think about things at the moment uh, particularly my thesis um is the idea of the art space as a very particular space it's like a boundary and things inside there are very different to how things are outside um but, you know there's a whole set of different behaviors um different ways of speaking of looking at things and maneuvering around the space as well so it just informs me massively really yeah awesome. <laughs> did you want to talk about um the, some one of the performance arts you've done so i noticed you, you you know you've done that before do you want to talk about that at all or? Oh yeah, um, that's also relevant as well. So um, I did kind of follow an artistic practice sometime after graduating, but that shortly moved into writing. Um, there was a bit of writing involved in it towards the end. Um, uh, yeah, so I suppose the main performances I'm thinking about were, there was one I did um, for a gallery called Namad Projects, which is in Mayfair. 
Um, and that was for an exhibition called I'm Not Tino Segal. So um, those who aren't aware, Tino Segal is a kind of, I guess, performance artist. I don't really know. Um, very conceptual and it's mainly him. It's The work is mainly just about sort of live performances in actual things. And he um, sells works via verb, verbal contracts alone. Um, highly conceptual. So the piece I made in response to that was uh, related to, oh, I guess this, this definitely informs a lot of my kind of approach to thinking about things overall. Um, the performance was informed by me, my experience working as a gallery assistant at the Tate. So I used to work at the Tate Modern and the Tate Britain. And so for this performance, I wore um, my old Tate uniform. Well, actually it wasn't mine. I'd thrown mine away or burnt it, but it belonged to um, an ex-colleague. So I borrowed that. And then I burnt it. Um, but I read a piece which was made up of the marketing material of a Tino Segal piece. It was his Unilever commission. I'm not sure if anyone remembers that, but it was him and a lot of other people running around in the turbine hall at the Tate Modern and doing stuff. Mm. Um, and it was the piece I read was kind of made up of marketing, marketing material about Tino Segal, um, about that piece. And then also kind of layered with other facts about the Tate, um, like the kind of inequality of the people who were working there, I believe it was. Um, and I would just approach people who came into the gallery doing this performance and just recite this text at them, um, not really looking at them. Um, so it's kind of about this wall of text that you get with the experience of art, which you're meant to kind of um, sort of calibrate with what you're actually seeing um, so I guess in that sense it was kind of highlighting that sort of uh, conflict you know between sort of suspending yourself between worlds when you look at art and then the second performance that I'm thinking about was for a gallery I cannot remember what they're called um, but there was a super cool group of people from Manchester um, I think they I think they are still doing projects, but I think a couple of them have moved on to other things, I'm not sure. Um, and that was a performance piece in which I just walked around the perimeter of the gallery for the duration of the private view. Um, just kind of, you know, get, moving around people, getting in their way, just getting in their eye line, things like that, with just sort of my head bowed, uh, my hands behind my back. Um, and that was just called the... It wasn't called The Artist is Present, because that's a Marina Abramovich thing. I can't remember what it was called, but the idea in that respect was just um, how galleries can be quite a, um, what is the word, a sort of ejecting space, if you will. It's sort of, you're kind of, there's this reminder usually in the people that are present, um, if they look cooler than you, or if there's a gallery system there, if there's security there, there's other people there looking at the artwork and kind of imposing their experience on you. Um, that, yeah, galleries can be very exclusive and the experience of art can be very difficult um, to calibrate, you know, with what's with your position, uh, social culturally, and yeah. what is actually contained in the gallery space itself. Sounds really interesting it's, it's, and fun. Sounds like a fun thing to do. <laughs> it was um, the, I mean, during the private view, it was fairly fun because, I mean, it wasn't, it was awful, but I feel like perhaps that's one of the things which used to 
um, make me make me perform. You know, I didn't have an internal desire to perform. I hated performing, but I'm really kind of preoccupied with that tension in social spaces. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and especially with the arts as well. It's being an artist is kind of very performative. Talking about your art is quite performative, um, and viewing art is very performative as well. So. I think it had a lot to do with, yeah, that kind of tension in a social aspect as well. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more things from you in the future. And so thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Take care. And I hope you continue to feel better following your vaccine. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, bye.